Most gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this chance we have to worship you and to learn about your word. We ask, Father, that you would help what we hear today and what we do today, um, that you would take those things, remind us of them when we leave this place so that we might live more like your son. In Christ's most holy name we pray. Amen. For those, of you who, who, for those of you who weren't here last week, the title of this class is The Dramatic Logic of Scripture. And just as a way of dusting off the cobwebs from the week, um, we talked last week about um, what that title means. And one of the things we talked about, one of the things I talked about, was how that term drama, to me, as an English professor, is, is a really important word. Because a drama, and the word dramatic, means a certain kind of a story. Not just a story about what happened. A drama is a story that demands to be acted out in human bodies on a real stage. That's what makes it dramatic. And that's why, to me, it's interesting that that phrase dramatic is being paired by Josh and Lauren with the term logic. Because logic, for most of us, is a term that's all about what happens in our heads. Not on a stage, but inside. And so that's the theme we sort of initiated last week. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does Scripture mean in the lives that we live? What do those stories in the Bible about real people who lived in this world and moved and breathed and thought and prayed and cried like we do, what does that mean for our lives today? What is the dramatic logic of Scripture as it informs our lives? The general theme of the Course is, is to think sort of at the macro level about Scripture. How do all those random stories fit together? Why are they there? And what are we supposed to do with them? What does it mean? What does it mean? Another one of my personal questions that I'm interested in um, and finding out some answers to is what does it mean to study scripture? How, how does that notion of the dramatic logic of scripture uh, affect the way I read scripture? Are, are, there, are there better ways for me to read? Certainly I need to read more often, but what kinds of questions can be productive for us to ask as we try to understand um, what has been left for us by generations of believers before to guide us on our way. And with that, I'll stop and let Josh take over. All right. Uh, welcome back or for the first time. I, uh, I won't cry again today. I uh, <laughs> told several people. Um, may have done my best teaching uh, last Sunday, so lower the bar for me from here on out. Uh, Matt is, is rightly picking up on how drama uh, invites us to, to play a role in this, to act within this. Uh, we mentioned last week this, how we might think of the biblical plot line as a six-act drama, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, the church, redemption, and that uh, we find ourselves somewhere in that fifth act of uh, the church, uh, awaiting redemption. And so... Scene one has already taken place, Pentecost, Acts, the Apostles, and we might find ourselves in scene two or scene three of this act. And so the, part of the logic piece is not just 
Uh, how do we think? But how do we think in such a way that we faithfully improvise within this part of the drama? Uh, whether it's on the big scale, these big issues about who is God and what are humans and what are we supposed to be about to the ethical pieces, how as Christians we faithfully improvise and think through some of these naughty issues like uh, what does the, how does the church navigate issues of science and faith or issues of sexuality and faith or whatever it might be. And then down to the kind of nitty gritty everyday stuff. How as we seek to live faithfully in scene three of act five, what does this look like in the way we go to our jobs and the way we see our coworkers and our neighbors and our family and our kids or our parents or siblings? Um, so uh, this is how drama and logic are, are coming together. Uh, so if we're thinking about the biblical plot line, um, maybe I'll give a, a couple metaphors that will guide at least my thinking on this over the next uh, several weeks. We might think of this as a lens. If we know the biblical plot line, just like with glasses, you can look at your lens or you can look through them. Um, and uh, looking at is important. You want, you want lenses that are the right prescription and are clean. But if you have lenses that are the right prescription and clean and you don't wear them, they're not doing you much good. Uh, and so it's important then that we, we work through and we understand the biblical uh, meta-narrative, the biblical plot line. We get the, the prescription right and we get them cleaned off, but that we also learn to look through them. Uh, another analogy from C.S. Lewis um, that I like is in his uh, little essay, Meditations in a Tool Shed. And so he imagines being in a tool shed and a beam of light is coming through. You can look at the beam of light, you can see it and little dust particles in it, or you can align your eyes with the beam and you can look along the beam. When you look along the beam, you can see out the little crack that the beam is coming through and see the horizon, the sky, the trees, the landscape. So in this class, we'll both be looking at the beam, the biblical plot line. We'll also be looking along it at, uh, at what we might see because of it. Uh, maybe as a counter example, keep my eye on the time here, uh, as a counterexample, um, I read a book recently uh, by an atheist philosopher at Duke, Alex Rosenberg, uh, and his book is The Atheist Guide to Reality. And what he does is something similar, but with atheism. He, he starts out with the, um, the atheistic lens, you might say. Uh, there is no God. Physics is all there is, X, Y, Z. And then the book is spent putting on those lenses and saying, if you wear these lenses, this is what it tells you about reality. There's ultimately no morality. There's ultimately no purpose. There's ultimately no personhood. There's ultimately no uh, afterlife. Um, there's ultimately no free will. And so he spends his book trying to argue that that is the way to look through those lenses. You may agree or disagree with him, but I think he makes a coherent case that when you put these lenses on properly, this is how you will see the world. Um, Christianity will give a different uh, set of answers. Uh, and what both Alex Rosenberg, this atheist, is doing, and what we're trying to do in this class is, is to see some of these distinctive uh, things that we might see when we look at it well. Um, I like Dorothy Sayers. She's this kind of witty writer. And she gives an example of a distorted Christian lens. Uh, you know, if you go, um, Ray-Bans are good, good sunglasses. If you go to some little knockoff shop in New York, you might get Roy-Bans, you know, they're... <laughs> They seem like the real thing, but you can tell when you put them on, you're not actually looking through the real thing. Uh, part of our, what we're hoping to do in this class is, is um, maybe um, correct some of the, um, 
the distortions in some of our Christian lenses, including our own. We're not perfect up here. Um, so that we're not looking through Roy Bands, but Ray Bands. Um, so here's Dorothy Sayers speaking 75 years ago um, to her British audience about a distorted lens. And I think um, you can see how if you don't have your lens the right prescription, you may not see through things very well. So here she does a little Q&A about uh, how people might respond to issues of Christianity and, um, and how they might need improvement. So what does the church think of God the Father? Answer. He is omnipotent and holy. He created the world and imposed on man conditions and possible fulfillment. He's very angry if these aren't carried out. He sometimes interferes by means of arbitrary judgments and miracles, distributed with a good deal of favoritism. He likes to be truckled to and is always ready to pounce on anybody who trips up over a difficulty in the law or is having a bit of fun. He is rather like a dictator, only larger and more arbitrary. What does the church think of God the Son? He is in some way to be identified with Jesus of Nazareth. It was not his fault the world was made like this, and unlike God the Father, he is friendly to a man, to man, and did his best to reconcile man to God. He has a good deal of influence with God, and if you want anything done, it's best to apply to him. Uh, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the whole thing incomprehensible. <laughs> Something put in by theologians, such as Lauren, to make it more difficult. Nothing to do with daily life or ethics. Um, let me jump down. What does the church think of sex? God made it necessary to the machinery of the world and tolerates it, provided that A, the parties are married, and B, they get no pleasure out of it. <laughs> what does the church call sin? Sex, getting drunk, saying damn, murder, cruelty to dumb animals, not going to church, most kinds of amusement. <laughs> Original sin means that anything we enjoy doing is wrong. <laughs> what is faith? Resolutely shutting your eyes to scientific fact. What is the human intellect? A barrier to faith. And she goes on. If these are what we're mistaking as Christian lenses, and we put these on, we're going to see things in a skewed way. So it becomes uh, all the more important uh, that we get our lenses the right prescription, and that we get them clean so that when we see through them, we see things properly. Uh, and which is going to lead us to Lauren in just a minute, uh, getting us thinking about how uh, the nature of scripture and how we read it in such a way uh, that it leads us to uh, a faithful um, set of lenses, if you will. But first, get a few uh, thoughts from Matt. So my job in, in this class uh, is the easy job. I just have to be kind of a gadfly, um, which is kind of nice. Not necessarily, not necessarily a gadfly, but but as, a, as an example of, of asking questions, all three of us teach at a university, and all three of us understand that the reason we teach is not because we know all the answers. People who teach at universities teach because they never could stop asking questions. And the sign for us of a really good class is a class in which there are more questions, many more questions than there are answers. Good questions are what lead us to better answers until the next questions arise. And to me, that's, that's sort of my, my parallel to Josh's um, analogy to, to lenses. Questions are also lenses. Questions ask us to look in a certain way or through a certain lens to see what we see and to discover what we discover. So here's, here's one of my questions, and, and you touched on it briefly. Sayers talks about there being <laughs> distorted lenses for Christians. But that raises the question of, is there one right lens? In the tradition I grew up in, we sp it seemed that we spent most of our time grinding 
the perfect lens and then using it against every other lens that there was. And so to, to push that analogy a little bit, I'm, I'm curious about, about what does it mean for us if, if we use that analogy, how do we know whether we're using a good lens or whether we're depending on a bad lens? Can there be more than one lens within the fold of Christian orthodoxy? Um, and, and, and are we supposed to be grinding and grinding and grinding all the time? The second question I had is, it goes back to the, to the beginning of what you said. When I, when I was a student, the hot thing was Francis Schaeffer. Does anybody remember that name? Yeah. Right. And, he, and a, the title of one of his books was How Shall We Then Live, right. which is a great line, and he borrowed it from somewhere else. But, but that also seems to me tied into not only the question of your lenses, but also that question of the dramatic logic of, of Scripture. If the, the point is, is living our lives and trying to live those lives along the beam, mm -hmm which also requires us to look at the beam sometimes from the side as we move into it. And so my question about the, that's my question. That, that's what I want us to think about is if that lens analogy is true, how does that, the notion of the lens condition not only the answers that we think we see, but the questions we can ask and also the questions we have been prevented from asking ourselves. So I'll stop there. I don't know if I should answer that or give that to Lauren, who's about to talk about the nature of Scripture. And, uh, Say a bit of how you'd answer, and then we can come back to it. Um, so I guess if you press the lens analogy too far, it, it gets difficult to, to sustain. But I would say that the Christian lenses should be... Um, should be informed by um, close readings of scripture, close, like deep and broad, uh, as well as paying attention to what the church has, has regarded as central from the beginning. Uh, and I think in some denominations, the problem is, is that um, it, it is, can be highly selective readings of scripture or uh, overemphasis on their distinctive uh, aspects of the tradition. So there is some room for, because we don't know what the perfect Christian lenses are, uh, but maybe, okay, maybe I'm pushing it too far, but maybe uh, what's happened in some denominations is they're spending the whole time trying to look through the little bifocal aspect of it, their unique piece, uh, rather than uh, seeing um, the, the more central Christian I don't know. I think we're going to be wrestling with that in this class. I think that's a great question to, to kind of lead us where we're going and why we read scripture the way we do. Yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> I'm talking about um, in light of everything we've been framing and this notion of um, reading scripture as having a kind of dramatic logic rather than just a logic, which is sort of how most of us were brought up, I think, is that there's a logic, it's stable, we have access to it. If we unpack it accurately enough, we'll know what God wants us to do. So to think of it as a drama in which we're involved in its unfolding is a little less 
of a sure thing, right? It feels a little more uncertain. It's a little more ambiguous as we have to work this out. But it doesn't mean that we're just free floating and making it up as we go. Okay, so we're going to talk about what, how do we do this? Okay, so um, first of all, thinking about what Christians have affirmed from the beginning, Christians have always affirmed God speaks to us by way of this book. Okay, so regardless of their view of scripture, every Christian is doing theology in light of it. So that's a central claim. N.T. Wright says, um, when thinking about how does God use scripture, he says, well, it isn't quite like a composer writing a score for people to play, but it's not far off. It isn't exactly like a dramatist writing a play, but that gets quite close. It, is, it isn't even, though this is perhaps the sharpest yet, that the Bible is the story so far in the true novel that God is still writing. It's all of these and more. So we won't, I, I think we don't want to get stuck in the, the kind of metaphor of the drama um, because that might sound a bit like we have it all wrapped up. But I think this is this inviting us to imagine what this means in this un- unfolding story. So uh, first of all, uh, history of Christianity is unfortunately littered with the ways that people have misread scripture, have treated it in such a way to try to tame it, to try and make it say what they already feel comfortable with, right? And so one thing we want to do in this class is come to scripture with the understanding that it can still change our lives. It can still change us. It can change the world through us. So that's an important piece. Um, one of my favorite stories that I learned when I started studying theology is a story about Karl Barth, who uh, was a reformed theologian around in, in Germany around the time when the Nazis were coming into power. And uh, there had been this long tradition of ways of reading scripture up until then that just kept getting progressively more and more what he understood to be kind of taming the Bible, making it say what felt comfortable to people at the time essentially turning Jesus into something like a German, okay? So that's one thing he said. And um, he, he got to this point in his own reading of it where he just couldn't buy it anymore. And he said, I came to Scripture and heard God speaking to me and saying no to all of these agendas that we have been developing in our country. And that enabled him to say no to Hitler and to what was happening in his country and to call people to rally behind him, other theologians, to say, this is where the church is opposed to this. So even that there were some German Christians who were totally on board with what Hitler was doing. So I think um, that kind of power that scripture has to speak into our lives here and now and to change us and to enable us to say no to de- demonic powers in the world is it's a remarkable thing that we want to tap into. So uh, we're, let's think about how we are going to be thinking of scripture in light of the verse we all grew up hearing 2 Timothy 3 16 and 17 all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient equipped for every good work okay so three notions I get from that that I think we need to work with one scripture is inspired inspired this word means breathed out by God right God breathed So, uh, in other words, God-given. God gives us this book. Now, what we're saying that does not mean is, it does not mean what I might have thought as a kid, which is that the Holy Spirit came down 
and held on to the hand of the writer, okay? It means that these are people with real personalities, real agendas, real interests and quirks who are caught up in the work of the Spirit and God's agenda for remaking the world. So what, where that gets complicated and kind of brings us back to some ambiguity is the fact that God's agency and human agency cooperate. That's something theologians like to talk about, that we cooperate with God. We aren't just blindly led by God like little machines, okay? So again, that's a little more ambiguous, but we're going to talk about how then do we tap into how God is leading us. Uh, let's see. Second, so first, scripture is inspired. Second, it is given to us by God to form us for God's work in this world. Okay, so it's equipping us for good works. So what this means, I think, is that scripture is full of good information, but that information isn't the point. The point is the formation. So we're reading, we read for information, and we keep coming back to it for good information, but to be formed for God's work in the world. So we don't want to separate the two. We don't want to say it's only formation, because then we too easily make that what we want it to be. So the information matters. But the primary purpose is not to offer us a blueprint for how to get things right, how to move through the world unscathed. Rather, it is to ready us for our vocation, so to, to get us ready to do God's work in the world. Okay, and then third, the Bible is authoritative. But its authority, if we're saying it's more about formation than information, its authority is akin to something like the earlier acts in the drama. So the stage is set, and it's a unique drama because it's one wherein we know the ending. So we know how this is all going to wrap up, but we don't know how we get there exactly, and we don't know precisely how God's going to bring all of that about. So we have, this, we have clues to the end, but we don't know precisely how that's all going to unfold. So that means uh, we are invited to become participating decision-making characters within the plot. That's important, I think, the decision-making piece of that, uh, because we're doing that by looking to the Spirit for, for guidance. So it doesn't mean that we get to throw away what we don't like in the plot so far, okay? Um, we have to keep returning to it because this is where God has revealed God's self to us. This is where we find out who God is in relation to us, who we are in relation to each other. So we have to keep returning to the plot so far and uh, trying to understand God's intentions for the world and for us. If we contradict or undermine the norms thus far, we don't get to move towards the intended conclusion, at least uh, not in the way we would like to. I think it's C.S. Lewis who says, you can either be used as Peter is or you can be used as Judas is. But God's will will be accomplished. It's You're the one who gets to decide kind of how you're going to enter into the story. Um, so let's see, what else do I want to emphasize there? Um, so that, those are my three things I want to say that we're doing. We're, we're saying that scripture is inspired, scripture is given to us for formation, and that scripture is authoritative, but uh, kind of using those concepts a little bit differently than we might have up until now. And so uh, in terms of how we do this, this is something I like to, to use with my students. How many of you know what the Wesleyan quadrilateral is? A few, yeah, see a few hands, all right. So um, in thinking about our resources for doing theology, 
John Wesley famously made, made use of this quadrilateral, although he's not the first. This has been done since the earliest uh, Christian theology. So what you have is scripture. Someone else want to help me out here? What else comes next? Tradition. What else do we have? Reason. Reason and experience. I heard both of those. Okay, so what, again, uh, all Christians are saying from the beginning of the movement is that we're doing theology in light of Scripture. This is the best source we have in terms of, as a community, coming together and discerning God's will for our lives. What are the norms of that? So Scripture is always central, and yet we're always bringing all of this to Scripture, right? We're always reading it in light of our experience, in light of our reason and wrestling with it, and in light of some sort of tradition. We don't come at it uh, free of communal norms, free of just any kind of forming in uh, some sort of tradition. So what we have to do then is try to enter into this process in a way that we hold these things open to be reformed by what we hear, how we hear God's voice speaking to us through Scripture. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> in terms of you know, well, is this scripturally based itself? I think we can think of this in terms of Matthew 22, 36 through 38. We are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. Okay, so bearing in mind that in a biblical context, soul pertains to the embodied life. Uh, so what I think this means is that we seek God by engaging the whole person. That means uh, having a robust prayer life. That means uh, living a life of discipleship, kind of you know, putting our lives on the line, and engaging our minds as much as we can. So uh, I think we can read scripture in the same way. This is a kind of holistic way of approaching scripture. That means giving attention to the narrative itself, the way we would teach children, and the way we can return to those narrative norms over and over. It means giving attention to exegesis. So. Bible scholars actually matter, unfortunately. I mean, I have to, I have to work with these guys. They can be pretty snotty. And, um, and something, a practice called Lexio Divina, which is basically the idea that we come to Scripture contemplatively. So we come, again, to kind of prayerfully let Scripture speak to us. So this is something, I think, in the Protestant tradition, we would associate this with something like your daily Bible reading, Right? Uh, something you can do by yourself when you're, you're waiting to hear a word from God as you're pouring over the text. But I would also say that that means you're doing that in community as well. So you can do that by yourself, but um, we forget, I think, too easily in the Protestant tradition how essential the body of the church is to hearing God's voice. So that's one reason we want to say if it's something that the whole uh, of the tradition has not affirmed. People all along the way have said the Trinity is an important doctrine. We probably ought to take it seriously because the Spirit works through the body of the church. The Spirit doesn't just drop down moments of inspiration into individuals who get to run amok and do whatever they want. Right? Okay, so um, I would just say I think what we can, we can kind of come back to this as a paradigm. We can think about uh, if as we try to do biblical theology we try to engage all, the whole person. That means critical reasoning, uh, kind of using our reason. 
It means careful interpretation and exegesis, which is also these things are going to flow together. It means contemplative engagement with God in a rich prayer life. And it means uh, living a life of discipleship, putting yourself in situations where you're in solidarity with people who are suffering, with people who are on the margins of society, with people who aren't, don't have a voice, you try to become their voice. So what you often can find and experience is you encounter God in a way or you learn something of God that you wouldn't have learned otherwise. Kind of an easy example of that is that uh, for those of us who grew up thinking that there weren't any real Christians outside of the churches of Christ, you find, oh, you run into someone who actually reminds you of Christ far more than anyone else you've ever met, and you realize they're Roman Catholic. That messes all that up, okay? So then you're coming back to all these thinking, whoa, how do I make sense of this? So it doesn't mean you just throw all of it out. It means you try to renegotiate. And I would just, I would add the tradition piece is that that means you do it in, in community rather than on your own, listening to the wisdom of the community. Okay. I'll turn it over. So Laura and I um, both did our training in, in thinking about the nature of Scripture and how we read Scripture. Uh, mine was more along the New Testament side and hers was theology side, so it's kind of fun to bring these together. Uh, as I look at this, I, I love the Wesleyan quadrilateral. My guess is that there are um, some of your experience you have seen where it's been Scripture and tradition, reason, experience are ignored in decision-making. And then some of you are probably aware of an upcoming generation that only cares about experience. That's the, that's the only thing that matters. And, uh, and I think there is an important balance here, although uh, I, maybe I'm speaking for myself here, but, but as Christians, we uh, tend to prioritize scripture, the great tradition that's held the church is recognized forever as being um, superior to individual experience. This is not just me and my experience with God, and that that can renegotiate all this. It's um, I don't think those four are balanced equally. I don't know if Lauren would agree or disagree with that, but um, she's wrong if she disagrees. Uh, and this is my five minutes, so uh, I hope you picked up on something Lauren said that I, I think is going to be crucial for us moving forward. Uh, that scripture is seen as this kind of divine slash human communication. And it's, it is a special form of that. Uh, I hope you didn't mishear her saying something like, as God worked through these humans, he's doing the exact same thing now, and my experience of, of God communicating through me is just the same as it was God communicating through Paul. No. The church thinks that there is something particularly special about how God was communicating through um, uh, the humans who wrote and compiled scripture. That is a separate special form of communication. However, because it's nonetheless God is working through people who are writing in a particular language, in particular genres, uh, within a particular culture, it means that to, to um, attend to how God is speaking through scripture means we have to attend to some of those human elements of it. Um, it means that some of that language work matters and understanding something about the genre matters. If you read Psalms not as poetry, you're probably gonna misread it because poetry demands to be read a certain way. And, and the kind of uh, oddness of how God works, he, he meets us in our kind of human forms of communication and communicates through our genres. So as we're going to be going forward, 
and we read Genesis, we're going to think, what's the genre here? When we read the Gospels, what's the genre here? And how do we faithfully attend to how God is communicating to this particular people in this particular place? So we honor the human side of it, but we also honor the divine side of the communication. Uh, that, that we enter with humility and with submission uh, to how God might be speaking to us. Uh, we assume that uh, we are not the only ones God has spoken to. So we pay attention to how God might have spoken to the other authors in the canon. So as we read Genesis, we think, what else has God communicated in Matthew and Mark and Paul and Isaiah that might shape how we hear this? And um, I like that Lauren brought in the, the devotional Lectio Divina side, that um, if, if we are to be listening to the voice of God speaking through Scripture, then it makes sense to attend to people who have given their lives to listening to the voice of God. Um, that if uh, some uh, brand new um, person has this kind of outrageous idea that they heard God speaking to them, I'm going to be a little less confident in it than someone who I know has been walking with God their lot, whole life and living out that walk. And they say, I, I believe God has put this on my heart because they have been tuning their ears to that kind of communication. Um, so that's the, that's the piece I just might want to um, add or clarify or dry, you know, kind of drill down uh, before we get going in this class. Um, Matt? We, we will let y'all ask questions too. There's just, there's just so much we want to say. We're teachers. I mean, that's our problem. And next week is next the... Week. Yeah, next week. The... Well, my response, um, one of the things that I, I heard um, in Lauren's bit was that the difference between taming scripture, which I think is a really interesting way to frame it, versus interpreting scripture. Because oftentimes when we get into arguments about issues, one side accuses the other of taming scripture, and the others are, are ignoring it altogether. The other side is saying, no, I'm, I'm interpreting scripture. And that, that difference between taming and interpreting to me is really interesting because it can be really destructive when we talk with each other. When I hear you say taming, what I, what I think I understand you to mean is that means that we're, we're making Scripture fit culture. Interpreting Scripture means understanding life inside of culture using a particular lens. Often, it's hard to tell the difference between the two, especially if, if different people understand Scripture differently or if they understand culture differently. So that, I really like that. The other thing that I, that I took away from what you said, Lauren, are, are those three um, elements of what we believe about Scripture. Scripture's inspired. That notion of cooperative agency is really important and raises a lot of questions. So, so what does it mean that we cooperate, that the writers cooperated with God? I think that's an important thing to think about. Josh mentioned when we read scripture, it's not one book. Uh, although I did hear in my growing up years, it is one book and God wrote it. That conflicts with my experience of scripture. Some of it's poetry, some of, it's, some of it reads like folklore, some of it reads like history, some of it reads like law, a lot of it reads like letters to friends, and some of it reads like, you won't believe the dream I had last night. <laughs> right? it's, a, it's a different kind of thing. Um, formative. Scripture is formative. 
to me, with my teacher's ears, it reminds me of the two terms formative versus summative. Right? A summative exercise in class is a final examination. Right? You get a grade, and for better or for worse, that's it. It's not supposed to teach you anything. It's supposed to let you demonstrate what you've learned or not. Whereas a formative assignment is an exercise that's given to see, so what, what, what are you getting? What do we still need to work on? We don't have to grade that. It's just a way of sort of testing where we are and seeing where we yet still need to go. So I like that notion of Scripture as formative, although I'm not sure if it's correct, but that, that's a way of thinking about Scripture. Do we tend to think of it as summative? It says what it says. We judge our lives by what it says. And then somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Or is Scripture formative? It shows us, leads us to ask questions, guides us as we try to live the kinds of lives we want to live. So I like that, that idea. The idea of Scripture being authoritative. On the one hand, it empowers us to make decisions about our lives. On the other hand, it also disciplines us with regard to the kinds of decisions we can make. Um, it, it worked, in other words, there's, there's two edges to the sword of Scripture. It helps us, but it also reins us in. Our problem is deciding which of those edges we're, we're working with. Now, I love this. I love this. If, if you let me draw on your picture. Um, I, I love this. What I think, what I would add to it is the idea that although arbitrarily it has four nice, nice boxes, what's really going on in this box is a constant, very dynamic tension between all of these things. For example, um, Lauren mentioned we have to have biblical scholars to like it or not. Just like you have to have like it. Yeah, you have to like it. The trouble is, when you hear people say, just read the Bible and you'll see what's true, what we often forget is that just to read the Bible in the language that you and I now speak, 21st century English, a, a, a huge amount of scholarship had to be involved right, to collect the ancient manuscripts, to collate them, to figure out as best as we can determine what the missing originals probably said and what those ancient words probably meant. No one left us a dictionary from the ancient Greek world or the ancient Hebrew world. And then how do we translate that into a language that captures what those words meant, not just what they said, but how they said it to what we imagine perhaps that audience might be. It takes a tremendous amount of scholarly work. Scripture is complicated. And that's one of the tensions. The intellectual activity of figuring out what Scripture says is, is a constant and ongoing battle. There's also this tension between Scripture and experience. I know that's what the Bible says. This is what I, I feel very strongly to be true in my life. How do I square this with that? This one. My mind says X. My heart says Y. How do, I, how do I make this decision? This one. Right? Traditions are created rationally. There's a reason we do church the way we do it. We, we decided this was a better organized way, a more rational way to handle it. Or we think, in the tradition I grew up with, traditions are bad. So we're, we're going to rationally 
invent one that's different so that we can say we're not invented. <laughs> Tradition and experience are important. All of us are still going to Church of Christ even though we might be at Otter Creek because we used, a lot of us don't want to leave the church we grew up with. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm not trying to be, I'm not making fun, but some of what we believe is based on what we grew up with. Do you go to first service? Do you go to second service? <laughs> <laughs> I want what I'm used to, or I want what speaks to me now. Right. That's another tension that we have. And there's this one. We've always thought Scripture meant X, but now it means Y. Right? We see this in Acts. Peter knows what God told him about eating with unclean Gentiles and what you're supposed to eat and not eat. There's no question in his mind, there's no question that Scripture tells him very clearly, you don't eat oysters. <laughs> and then he has a vision, which tells him otherwise, which means against all of his upbringing, he's got to have lunch with Cornelius. And that's going to affect how he thinks about Scripture. Mm -hmm. right? All of us, I think, if we're thoughtful people, live those kinds of Peter moments every day if we're thoughtful. What we're dealing with, we call the Wesleyan quadrilateral. What I would call it is, this is just the, the problem of trying to live a Christian life, a thoughtful life. It's dramatic. It's, it's not fixed. These arrows represent tugs of war, so to speak, that are pulling in all of these directions all the time. And the decision we make in one corner is, will be affected by and will affect all the other squares in the block, if that, if that makes sense. I, I like, too, most of all, <coughs> the fact that tradition might also be called community. And I think sometimes we forget how important the community of the church is in helping us handle questions that get raised everywhere else. So tradition and tradition is what makes communities communities. And I think that's another important thing for us to think about since when we argue about scripture we tend to divide community sometimes much more than we should. I'll stop there. We got it's 10.50. We go until how long? Thanks, <laughs> oh. We have negative five minutes. So none of us do math. None of us do math. Thank you very much for being here.